The text taken for the sermon today is from the gospel. There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. The gospel appointed for today seems at first a bit strange, doesn't it? Here we are halfway through our Lenten fast and we have a story of great feasting, of bread and food that sounds so good during a fast. But what we will see is that this gospel helps us to understand the very essence of Lent, the reason why we fast and pray with special devotion during this time. And to understand this, we will first go through the gospel, paying attention to the little details that John gives us. Next, when we put this gospel in context of the whole of chapter 6 in his gospel, we will see a deeper meaning of the gospel miracle. And finally, we will draw some lessons from the gospel that will help guide us towards Holy Week. The narrative which starts today picks up right after Jesus has done some miracles in and around Jerusalem and finished a long section of teaching. The crowds have flocked to him, and the news of his miracles have spread throughout the region. And with news comes even more onlookers. And we know that Jesus does not fail their expectations at this point. He continues to heal the sick, to cure the blind, and to teach with a new authority. In the midst, though, of fame and opportunity, Jesus leaves. He goes away and seeks solitude. John writes, And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Notice how John, though, is framing this narrative with details. Jesus goes up onto a mountain with 12 disciples. He is, in effect, this is what John's trying to get you to see, he's, in effect, the new Moses, drawing up the 12 tribes of Israel with him into the mountain. And as Moses gave the law to Israel, now Jesus is set to fulfill that very law. John furthers this interpretation by adding that the feast of the Passover was close. The feast of the Passover that is the feast in which Israel remembers Moses leading his people out of Egypt into the wilderness and to the foot of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Jesus then sees a large group of people coming their way. These are the people who had seen Jesus' miracles. And when Jesus head across the lake in a boat, they marked where that boat was going and they walked around the lake in order to be there when Jesus landed. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was, but it had to have been at least between five to ten miles of walking for this mass of people. Imagine then the scene. In light of what John is trying to get us to imagine, we have a large group of Israelites wandering in the wilderness, coming to the mountain where God is present. Isn't this remarkable? He's just setting up the same thing again. And then Jesus asked, where are we going to get bread to feed everyone? Is this not what Israel asked while they're wandering in the wilderness? 
Lord, why did you save us from the Egyptians and to let us starve in the desert? Philip, he sums up Israel's typical, typical response. Despair. What is this? We can't, 200 wages, days of wages can't feed these people. This is way too much. Perhaps we should not be too surprised that both Philip and Andrew do not see the significance of the situation, nor display any hope of a miracle or trust in Jesus at this point. Jesus, in a way that, you know, perhaps a good teacher might draw out a student in order for him to see a deeper lesson, Jesus is teach, uh, testing them here. And what's amazing, however, is that there's a small boy who did offer up his lunch when he either maybe saw the need or maybe he heard Jesus' questions. I think it's safe to presume that the apostles didn't steal his lunch, let's hope so, but that he offered it up on his own accord. John notes that the boy had barley bread. This is no surprise. Barley bread was the cheapest grain available. This was the bread of the poor, the bread of the lowly. But what's important here, if you know your Old Testament, is that that connection of barley bread brings you right back into 2 Kings when Elijah, the great prophet, he multiplied 20 loaves of barley bread for a hundred men. You see what John is doing here, connecting again the Old Testament to the actions of Jesus. But in this time, Jesus performs a much larger miracle, not only multiplying just the same type of barley loaves, but also fish and in a greater amount. It is with a small sacrifice that Jesus works his miracle. He takes the offering of this boy, meager as it was, he blesses it, and then he returns it to the people multiplied. It's interesting then that when Jesus commands these men to sit down, in the Greek, the word that Jesus uses here is actually a very specific word to recline. In the ancient world, during feast, especially like the feast of the Passover, for instance, people would recline at the table, leaning on their side and on one arm. Jesus is preparing them for the new feast. And the note that there is much grass in the place shows that indeed it is in the springtime, the time when Passover actually happens. And then Jesus takes the loaves and he gives thanks. The word in Greek there is eucharisteo. Of course, the word that we get, our word for Eucharist. And then he hands the bread to the apostles and it is they who distribute the bread to the people. John makes it clear here that the miracle does not pass by unnoticed. Everyone realizes the importance of such an act, and he immediately, the people try to draw Jesus into their plans. Our gospel reading stops there in verse 14, but in verse 15, it says that Jesus perceives that, perceived that the men were going to take him and make him king. The people understand that this new prophet is their new political messiah. He's their new king to help them rebel from the clutches of the Romans. Now, I've always thought these people were just kind of crazy to think this way. But think of the historical situation that they're in. 
The expectation of rebellion was not strange, and the time for revolt was actually ripe. The rhetoric of uprising and revolt was very popular at this time in Judaism, and there had already been several attempts right around the generation of Jesus to rebel against the Romans. Yeah, they all failed, but had those leaders just fed 5,000 people from five loaves of bread? And again, Jesus, what is he doing? He's taking his mass of followers out of the eyesight in the watch of the Romans, gathering together in the foot of a mountain to arm them and to gather his forces. It seems so clear that's what he's doing. And for Jesus, with John the Baptist's murder in the back of his mind, this is the time for revenge, and the people are ready to fight for him as king. So Jesus takes up the sword and fights the Romans, right? No. He walks away again. And John notes that again he goes back into the wilderness alone. We're going to need to look at all of chapter 6 in John to understand why did Jesus walk away from this? And why did the people misunderstand him in such a great degree? During his teaching later on in chapter 6, he tells the people, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The feeding of the 5,000 then is a living parable of Jesus Christ. It shows that God, that as God supplies the basic sustenance of life for these people, so will he provide our basic sustenance for eternal life. Jesus now is offering himself, his flesh, to be our sustenance. This is why we say as we distribute the host, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And what's so striking within John's narrative is that all of this is done within the backdrop of the Passover. Imagine the Jews. They're all preparing the lambs to be slaughtered. They're all baking their unleavened bread ready for the Passover meal. And Jesus now is offering himself as the bread of life. It is now his flesh we eat, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. It's remarkable that given then all this emphasis in John on the bread of life and the emphasis of Jesus on his body being the bread of life, John is the one gospel that does not detail the Last Supper. He says it happens, but he doesn't explain it at all. He doesn't give what happened at the Last Supper. And at first, this seems really strange. But given what we have seen here today, Jesus has already declared his body to be the sacrifice. He's already consecrated himself. He's already declared his body to be the source of our eternal sustenance. He has already given up himself as the Paschal Lamb on our behalf. The Last Supper then, though not 
ritually or liturgically explained in John is already present there. The question that remains then is what is our response? We have the crowds, but they leave Jesus after his hard sayings of, his, of eating his flesh. They run away. Philip and Andrew, who were also tested by Andrew, or who are, are, were also tested by Jesus, rather than realizing who is asking them the question, the man who turned water into wine, they were there. They are lost in their own material worries of, oh, of course we can't feed these people. Of course this can't happen. So we're left then with the example of the little boy. It is he. He is the one, the only one, who gives to Jesus what he has and also expects that it might be helpful. It is the child's example which we should follow. And it is his example which takes us into the heart of Lent, into the meaning of Lent itself. The little boy offers up a little sacrifice of food. Even the apostles thought that it was meaningless. But Jesus accepted the sacrifice of food, he blessed it, and then he returns it to the boy and to the whole crowd as a miracle. This is our image of fasting, of our Lenten fast. We give up a meal or a certain type of food, and that little sacrifice is offered up to Jesus for him to bless and then to return to us in ways that are unimaginable. God uses our small offerings, such as our prayers, our fasting, our almsgiving. And if we offer them to him, trusting him, he will return them to us. Think about the Mass itself. Our parish provides bread and wine to be offered up upon the altar of God. And God takes that small offering, and when the priest consecrates the bread and wine, it becomes the body and blood of Jesus, and then it is returned to us who offered it as a blessing, as a means of grace. So our Lenten fast teaches us that God will use our small intentional offerings or sacrifice for his work blessing us in the process. And as we learn through Lent how to do this in small ways, such as giving up that Snickers or not eating that hamburger or not snacking or giving up a meal, these are trivial in a sense. But by giving those things up, we will learn the habit of how to offer up much larger things in our lives. It is through the small Lenten practices that we learn how to give to God our deeper desires, how to offer up the gifts that God has given us back to God. And we also learn then how to give and offer our sufferings that we go through, our grief that we carry, and our pain that we endure. As we have seen today, God will take all of those things he will bless them. He will bring meaning to their existence and not leave them there. And then he will return them back to you 
as a gift and as a blessing. And that blessing then works out not just for you, but for the whole church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.